In this series, lowimpact.org and the Open Credit Network talks with people working to build a mutually owned, democratic, decentralised economy that builds community and doesn't destroy nature. We want to increase collaboration to bring about system change. Find links to the sites mentioned in the videos in the description below. Join the conversation by liking, commenting and subscribing to our channel. So today I'm talking with Chris Cook, who designed and built the Iranian oil bourse, which could help move the world away from the petrodollar. We'll be talking more about that later. Uh, Chris, you're an ex-city regulator, senior research fellow at the UCL, and inventor of various financial products and services designed to help communities rather than helping extract wealth from communities. Is that, is that close? That's pretty close. Close enough, Dave. I think, I think a lot of people today see the need for a new kind of economy because this one isn't sustainable or democratic. And there are a lot of people working to try to build this new economy. And my aim with these interviews is to, to try to explain to a general audience what those people are doing and to try to work out how they might come together so that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, if you like. Uh, and I know that the kinds of things that you're doing are quite complicated, so I think uh, it might be more of a challenge than usual. So um, we'll talk about what you're up to now and about how it contributes to building a new economy. But first, I want to talk about something that happened to me in a kebab shop in Tooting uh, a few years ago in South London. So um, I was in the queue and there was a big TV screen. I was the only white person in there. It was full of Pakistani men and it was in Urdu. And suddenly somebody started speaking in English and it was a guy called John Perkins. And he said, in 1971, I was sent to Saudi Arabia by President Nixon. And my mission was to say to the Saudis, nice oil fields you've got here. Wouldn't it be a shame if anything happened to them? Uh, but I'll tell you what, we'll protect your oil fields as long as you promise never to sell your oil in anything except dollars. So then everybody will need dollars to buy oil. The dollar will stay high and then America will be able to hoover up all the world's resources relatively cheaply. And he said, the Saudis said yes, obviously. He went to all the other oil exporting countries and they all said yes. And only two people ever stepped out of line and said no. And that was Gaddafi and Saddam um, with immediate consequences. And so I looked around me and I was, I was gobsmacked and everybody was looking at me. <laughs> and, um, and I said, is, the, is this common knowledge in the, in the Pakistani community? They said, yes. I said, it's not common knowledge in the, in the white European community. They said, we know. <laughs> and so um, I've looked up John Perkins and his, his publisher put out a sort of a, a memo to, uh, uh, to, 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 to claim that he was, uh, you know, he, what he said was true. And he does seem very credible. And I wanted to speak to somebody on the inside. Is that true? Was that, is that an approximation to the truth? Um, it contains elements of truth, Dave. If, um, where, where the relationship really began with the Saudis was 1945, Bitter Lake, when um, I forget the name of the sheikh, you know, the great grandfather of the current one or whatever it was. Um, and during, basically, the Americans came to an agreement that they would give protection to the Saudis in return for the Saudis um, providing them with the oil. And naturally, the dollar was part of that. Um, 
Now, 71 was an interesting point uh, because that's when the world came off the gold standard. Yeah. Um, and, you know, of course, the, the Saudis and, and, and Middle East are big into gold. And, and that's always been a big thing. This whole, um, we'll come on to it, the whole Iran oil bourse was a sort of spin on the whole, the people who were promoting that meme, if you like, we're very much from the fraternity who believe in a hard currency and gold specifically. Um, but we'll come back to that. Um, one of the things you have to understand about the oil market or any market really is that it doesn't really matter so much what you price it in as what you actually settle it in because the two things can be different. You know, I could do an oil trade now in euros um, but I will be looking at the dollar price and I will immediately also do a foreign exchange transaction at the same time, which then settles when we actually come to pay for the oil in three months time, once the boat has been you know, chartered, etc. So there's a misconception there. It doesn't really matter what your unit of account is, what you price in. What matters is what currency you actually pay for it in, in due course. Yeah, and then and then, which it takes us into the petrodollar, what happens to the proceeds? That's the real important thing. What happens to the proceeds? Um, and you know, that's where we're into. That's where the U.S. has got very persuasive over the years. When you when you say persuasive, when you say persuasive, <laughs> I mean it, uh, John Perkins' account. It was a protection racket. Do you, do you think it was a protection racket? What he was doing, going around the world with the CIA and whatever, was basically selling debt, okay? That's what they were doing. They were you know, going around to countries in the world and lending people money on a massive scale, particularly in Latin America. You know, they would be lending dollars on a massive scale because that puts the country in hock to you. You know, they create the dollars through loans. That's how dollars are created, and it's not wildly widely understood. The Chinese are doing just the same thing now, Dave. It's basically economic colonialism. Yeah, know? I was yeah. The British did it with Sterling. Everybody does it. Yeah. You know? I wasn't particularly picking on the States. I knew that I know that China is gonna move in and try and do exactly the same thing. I knew the British did it. Um yeah. but yeah he didn't mention anything about debt. He he was just a it was just a pure protection racket. He was a like, nice oil fields, we'll look after them for you. And, the, and the, the insinuation was, if you don't do what we say, we're going to bomb the shit out of your oil fields. That seemed to be what he was saying. Well, let, let me tell you my take on that. Um, and it comes into Gaddafi and it comes into, um, you know, um, what's his name as well? Saddam. Yeah. You, you see, those, those guys, my, my, take, my take is this, that um, Bush, and it was Cheney who was most responsible for this, Cheney had read a book um, called Twilight in the Desert by Matt Simmons about um, peak oil. He believed that peak oil was a thing. And, you know, in a sense it is, but, you know, basically the thesis was that, you know, the Saudi oil is pretty much limited. Um, it's in runoff. You can't get more out of the fields they've got. And the big oil companies, Dave, where they make their money it's not from owning an oil asset for 20 years. It's from developing new oil assets. And what they always, always, always want to get is cheap, easy to develop oil. The thing about Libya is 
it's cheap and it's easy to develop. The thing about Iraq, the thing about Iran, the thing that these all have massive resources of oil. They know where it is. It's underexploited in many cases, and it is there to make a huge amount of money out of from development. This is the key point. They wanted control of those con countries for development. And they had a shopping list. There's a general, this is post 9-11, I forget who it was. But you know the neocons, real men go to Tehran and all that nonsense. After, you know, it, They had a shopping list of countries which they were going to go in. Iraq was the first. And then, you know, and then Iran and Libya and, and all the rest of them, they had this shopping list. Um, everybody thought, you see, that Saddam was going to really be quite difficult. You know, that it was going to be, can you remember back at the time, oh, he's got this big army, it's going to be very bloody. And then in comes Iraq, sorry, in comes the US, and they're all over them in like weeks. It's like massive, um, you know, what's it called it? Shock and awe, I think mm. they called it. And the point is, Dave, at that point, Libya, Gaddafi said, he rolled over and said, tickle me. He gave up at that point. He gave them everything he had on whatever nuclear he was doing, whatever chemical weapons he was doing. You know, he invited in Tony Blair and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, but you wasn't, know, wasn't, he, um, wasn't he trying to build a, a new African currency to replace the dollar in North Africa? He was, but again, that's back to this red herring. In my opinion, I don't really believe that has much to do with it at all. I really don't. Yeah. I think that is, uh, and we, we'll come to the uh, oil bourse, because that is an example. I remember at the time I was interviewed by Liam Halligan on it at the time. Uh, and I, I, you know, I was able to actually say um, precisely why that meme doesn't work. But again, we can park that and come back to it yeah. if, you, if you'd like. Or yeah. I could address it now. It's up to you. Well, then let's, let's go on to the all. But I mean, is, is the reason, do you think the reason they haven't invaded Iran is because of their closeness to China? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think it's that Iraq was seriously traumatic for the US, seriously traumatic. Um, in my view, the Chinese back in 2007, it was very interesting, and I wrote about it at the time in Asia Times. I, I believe that the Chinese basically said to the US, if you do continue what you're doing in Iraq, uh, we're going to pull the plug on the dollar at the time. They would have just sold the dollar colossally. Um, and, and at that point, the U.S. announced that they would pull out, which they did. They announced that other countries apart from U.S. would, be, would get oil development. Um, there were various interesting things happened. But basically, it blew out of the water the U.S. attempt to have, if you say, first dips at the really, really low-cost oil, because that's what they wanted. And of course, after that, the Iranians started funding, you know, the guerrilla, you know, they, 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 they were helping the Iraqis to resist the US occupation and making life very difficult. And the US never forgave them for that, you know. Um, but I think it was at that point that the entire neocon plan went tits up, because the Chinese said, and this is what happened at Suez, Dave. Remember, at Suez... I don't um, remember Suez. I was too young. 
<laughs> well, I don't. I was I was two at the time. But uh, but what happened at Suez was the Brits and the Brits and the French went in. Um, you know, delusions of empire still. And the Yanks just said, "If you continue, we're going to pull the plug on Sterling, mm. right?" And it and that was what I call you know it was an end of empire moment. Mm. And I believe that the Chinese said in two thousand and seven to the Americans, "We're going to pull the plug on the dollar." unless you pull out okay and was that an end of empire moment do you think yes it was i call it a suez moment and you'll find i wrote use that phrase subsequently you know again in asia times i did a lot of writing then in asia times um so that that's what i believe happened in 2007 that the chinese and don't forget that um hank paulston had like a season ticket to the to china at the time and i'm and I've spoken to somebody very, I mean, very senior, who confirmed that that was essentially the threat, you know, done in a very Chinese way. That, you know, we're sorry, but you're going to have to share the fruits <laughs> of, of oil development mm. um, with us. Um, and, and I think that, that, that was, in my view, the sort of end of empire moment. It also coincided with the financial crash, of course, and the two things are two sides of the same coin. Um, could I ask you a question? Why do you think the states allowed to, uh, China to build to buy up so so much of um, you know the dollar and the American economy? Well, it wasn't so much that. It's just that the dollars, you know, the Chinese were making. First of all, the Americans outsourced their industry to China, mm. right? <laughs> So, and the Chinese um, have been building on a stupendous scale. But of course, dollar being the currency of trade, um, you know, the, the Chinese, um, you get, whenever euro, whenever dollar loans are created, you know, euro dollars, you get dollar reserves um, at the Fed. And people think, oh, that's all, you know, that, that's all sort of Chinese money they can do what they like with. But actually, it's not quite like that. Um, you know, the, 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 the Chinese um, do have the capacity to uh, lend money. This is what they do. They go in throughout Africa and they, they're, they're, you know, they're hoovering up assets in the same yeah. way that the U.S. did before them. But they're pissing a lot of people off the same way that the U.S. did before them. And the thing that the Chinese don't have that the Americans did is the military muscle to go in and enforce the debts. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that that's a sort of real politic that the, the U.S., like like Britain before, if you didn't pay Britain's debts during the empire days, they'd come and take your country away from you. OK. U.S., same potential, but China doesn't. Never will have. You know, big difference. <clears throat> Never will have? Nah. China, China's the China. China built the wall to keep people out, Dave. All right. Their, their, their posture has never been adventurism. They're too smart. They would rather other people's 19-year-olds die depending, you know, defending the trade routes. Their 19-year-olds will never do that. Mm. That's just my view of the Chinese character. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, they, said they, sort of, they certainly seem intent on taking over economically. And I, 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 was, speaking to somebody, yes. I was speaking to somebody who lives in China, and he says... Yeah, yeah. They they make a five year plan and they stick to it to to the cent, and and absolutely and they, 
they never put a foot wrong and they, they, will, they will take over the world. He's absolutely convinced. Well, but, but my point is, yes, you can lend to the world. Yes, you can do all of these things, and they do ruthlessly. Your friend is quite right. They're doing it ruthlessly. But can they send the bailiffs in the way the British did and the Americans can? No way, Jose. The countries can and will walk away from it, in my view. Um, so I, I think the Chinese need to rethink their strategy. Um, and, uh, but certainly they do take a, you know, a long-term view. They are strategic in a way that the U.S. never is. The U.S. are just looking for the next quarter. Mm. <laughs> you, mm. know? They, you know, the U.S. doesn't have a strategy. <laughs> Not really. You know? so, so, so the headline, um, you're, you're the inventor of the Iran oil bourse. Can, can you just explain what it is? Right. Well, I'll tell you where it came from first. Um, I was, this is by way of context, I mean, I was a director of what is now the biggest energy exchange. It's called the Intercontinental Exchange now. But I was the, inter, I was the uh, director of compliance and market supervision um, of the International Petroleum Exchange, which was bought in about 2000, 2001 by... Um, and where, where, it, where it was bought from, essentially, the Intercontinental Exchange uh, is Wall Street and a, f a couple of big oil traders. Um, <laughs> they, they, set, they set out to, um, to buy um, and financialize the oil market. It's a very interesting strategy. Um, Gary Cohn, Goldman Sachs, boss man, really, and John Shapiro of Morgan Stanley, they sat down for dinner one night, this is during the dot-com boom, and decided that they would put together a, um, a project for a global oil trading platform, an electronic global oil trading platform. When's this, late, late 90s is this? This was 99, 2000. I'm not quite sure when the dinner was, but ICE came along 2000, 2001. They made an offer to Jeff Sprecher, who had this, uh, it was called the Intercontinental Exchange. I think it was power trading, going nowhere, in trouble. But they basically brought him in to do the technology, or his technology in. Um, and their strategy was absolutely brilliant, what they did. Um, they, first of all, went to six of the big oil companies. Um, well, um, not all oil companies, trade should we say liquidity providers? So there was Shell, there was BP, there was Total, um, there was, I think, Societe Generale. Um, and these were what we call market makers, right? You need liquidity in order to have a market. And in return for commitments from these guys to provide liquidity to the market, this new market they were setting up, they gave them equity, you know, shares in the exchange, this new exchange. You mean? Uh, having got that... Having got that core liquidity, they then went to, you know, the next tier, let's call it the second level of, of not so big traders. And they had to pay. <laughs> they had to pay to get in. So there were maybe a dozen or so. Um, and these are all middlemen. Don't forget. These are all middlemen. These are not producers or consumers. Okay. These are the middlemen. The Intercontinental Exchange is all about middlemen. And the middleman and, is what you wanted to cut out. Well, we'll come back to that. That's the way the world's going, Dave. A very astute comment. Um, at, that, at that point, you see, I wouldn't so much say cut them out, but 
I was more interested in the producers and consumers. Um, at that point, I didn't really see the strategy for what it was. Um, but I'll come back to what happened to me in a minute. Um, what they then did was um, they, they needed to get to the end user customers. Okay, they needed to do that. And they made an offer. They went to the New York Mercantile Exchange, NYMEX, and made them an offer to buy them. They tried to buy them because that bought them the market. Okay, that, that gave them access to all the producers and consumers of oil in the world because they used that exchange. And NYMEX told them basically to sod off because NYMEX was run by uh, traders. Um, and then they came to IPE. This is after I left and made them an offer which they couldn't refuse because IPE was not a, a middleman's market so much as what we call a broker's market, people who facilitated deals. And so at that point, <laughs> I had got involved in helping a trader, an IPE trader asked me to help defend him on a disciplinary case. And what I found um, was, that they were basically hanging the trader, um, you know, shooting the messenger in a sense, because I found and blew the whistle on pretty much systemic um, manipulation of the of the trade settlement price every day. By, it was massive. It was, this, this is by again, this by the middlemen, by traders. Traders were manipulating the closing price of the exchange because that gave them an advantage, or some people an advantage in. In, in pricing physical market deals. So I, I stumbled across this, blew the whistle on it. Because of who I was, they had to take it seriously. But, you know, I, um, I basically got stitched up and hung out to dry and lost everything I had, home, family, everything. And a friend of mine, an Iranian, um, who saw what happened to me, we worked together on some software, and he was disgusted. <laughs> And he happened to know the um, governor of the central bank, Governor Nurbash, who we'd met. Um, this is 2001. And he and I wrote a letter to Governor Nurbash recommending, this is in June, I've still got the letter, June 2001, recommending that the, that the Iranians, because the, you know, the IPE price was being manipulated, which it was, and, and still is. That's a separate story. I don't. I don't quite understand how it's been. But I don't. I don't suspect, suspect that matters, does it? It's just. It was just being. It was corruption. Well, well, the whole point. You see, the whole point of the Intercontinental Exchange Day. This is the whole point of it. Was and is to control the price, right? It made OPEC irrelevant. People don't get this. It made OPEC irrelevant. Wall Street and a couple of North Sea producers, essentially, were able to take control of the global benchmark price, which is Brent, North Sea oil is Brent, and it gave them the ability to basically um, control the price. I won't tell you how it's done, it's quite complex, but take it from me that that, that price has been, since 2001, manipulated. They immediately introduced a formula called the it's called B wave the Brent weighted average 
formula and the Saudis started to price their oil against it. Okay, that's what it was for. And why did the so, Saudis do that? Because well, they'd been because, threatened or because they were they, financial? They were, they were I'm sure they were told to uh, or, or persuaded or whatever it was. Um, and it suited them because the whole purpose of that was to get the higher price. You know, com commodity market 101 days. Right, right, okay, yeah. Well, if producers can support the price, they will. That's commodity market rule 101, you know, because whether it's De Beers in diamonds, whether it's any cartel, will always try and support the price. And, of course, the oil producers in the North Sea, you know, BP, Statoil, people like that, they had an interest in high prices. So, of course... If they can put the price up, they will. And that's exactly what happened. I blew the whistle on it. I then, we wrote this letter to Governor Norbash. And then as a result of that letter, the, Iran the Iranians got very interested in, a see, we were recommending, Dave, a Middle East benchmark, a Middle East benchmark. And I can tell you, the currency was never a consideration. And I can tell you that because it was my idea. I subsequently, in 2004, when I, in oh. May 2004, uh, my colleague and I made a presentation at the central bank in Iran, um, and we got the contract to do a feasibility study. Um, as a result of that, you know, it was it was it was always our contract to do because it was our idea, and um, and. <sighs> So it may not have been a consideration for you. I mean, the, the, the currency may not have been a consideration for you, but um, even if they didn't say it, wasn't it a consideration for the Iranians? Well, I can tell you the answer to that because um, I met in London. Um, he was the OPEC representative um, of Iran, um, Ardabili, Kazimpur Ardabili. I think he recently had a stroke in the last few days, actually, before, before man. But um, he... Um, he basically said that the Iranians had raised the possibility of the euro, because don't forget the euro was just emerging at that time when we wrote that letter. You know, it only came in in 2000. Um, and he said the Iranians raised the possibility of the euro uh, at an OPEC meeting, but it didn't go anywhere. And they weren't that bothered about it, because frankly, the euro had only just kicked off in 2000. By 2004, the euro really wasn't doing that much, you know? Um, but it is the case that the European Central Bank has always had an ambition, always, for petro-euro, okay? Always has. Um, and I believe that after 2014, um, the Saudis, from 2015 onwards, actually took, I believe they took the uh, oil away from the dollar, okay, um, and put it into the euro. And if you like, I'll tell you why. <laughs> this is all about strategy at the end of the day. Oh, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'll talk you through Chris Cook's version of what happened in the oil market then. Um, between 2000 and, um, yeah, 2001, for a few years, not a great deal happened but then gradually the oil market was pretty tight actually supply and demand was tight so you know high prices were reasonably justified um and but then what happened was um we started to see 
um, investment, a new breed of funds came in, whereby people, they call them index funds. You may have come across index funds, and um, where, where people could actually, they call it hedging inflation. The theory was that you could protect yourself against inflation by investing in assets like oil, okay? And gold was another one, obviously. You know, it's a, they, people call it an inflation hedge. And what happened was that funds started to invest in oil through oil futures. Okay, now, now Dave, this wasn't speculation. This is the opposite of speculation. This is people who want to protect the value of their money against inflation and therefore invest it in hard assets like oil. But the result of that was that oil prices started to get into a bubble. And you, you may remember that in 2008, it reached, I think it was, it spiked up to $147 in July. Mm. You know, it was crazy. I gave evidence to the Treasury Select Committee at that time with about three others um, because everybody was interested in what the bloody hell was going on. And I said then, Dave, I said at the time, look, we have to open an international regulatory commission between the US and the UK because the market's been manipulated. I could see who was doing it and I could see why they were doing it, you know? So then you got the financial, in a sense, Dave, that was a private sector bubble. It wasn't governments involved in that. It was Goldman Sachs and it was BP in the oil market in particular with a fan club. And they were the ones mainly responsible for that bubble and spike um, using the same sort of techniques that Enron did to um, invest in, in oil. So then the price collapsed because it was only ever a spike in the same way the recent negative prices were only ever a spike. It was manipulation. Price collapsed. <clears throat> and, um, and, and, and at that point, OPEC started to cut um, production. Production. Um, but the price kept on going down. I mean, by December, it had reached... $35 a barrel. This is from 147 in July. So you can imagine OPEC are basically shitting themselves at that point, pardon my language. Um, and they made the mistake of cutting 4 million barrels a day. Why was that a mistake? The mistake was that it had nothing, this price collapse had nothing really to do with physical oil. It was that the buyers could no longer buy it because the, the bank finance system, David, collapsed. Banks did not trust each other. So it, buyers who wanted to pay for oil were unable to pay for it. So there was no physical market at the time. Same way, Dave, there's no physical market in oil right now. There's no physical market. There's a forward market, but there's no physical market in oil because 30 million barrels a day of demand have gone out of the market. Mm -hmm. So, price collapses. <clears throat> then what happened, Obama comes in, and he's a Wall Street president, okay? He's a Wall Street president. Bush was an oil president, the way I see it. So, Obama comes in. He immediately fixed the financial problem by chucking gazillions of dollars at it, fixed the banks. Banks start financing things again. Um, then what happened was the oil price was pumped up. It was pumped up to $80 and it was kept above $80. It went as high as 120 for the next five years. Now, 
Why would, why would Obama do that? Well, let me tell you why he did it. It's the same reason and the same advice, I think, um, as in 1973, when the oil price went from $3 to $12 and stayed at $12. The that, was, that, was the OPEC, that was the OPEC um, price rise, wasn't it? It was. But Kissinger, Kissinger went to the Shah of Iran, who was the boss man in the oil market then, and he said, look, I want, to keep, I want you to keep the oil price at $12. And Shah of Iran didn't understand why. But Sheikh Yamani did. And the reason was, at $3 a barrel, it was impossible to finance North Sea oil, Alaskan oil, US Gulf oil. At $12, they could and they did. And guess what, Dave? The petrodollars from the higher prices funded it. That all that money flowed into the US, enabled the UK and the US to actually fund the higher production. Now that's exactly what happened under Obama. So what happened, right? I mean, Dave, in Tehran in 2011, I said then, and the price is over hundred dollars. I said that once quantitative easing QE stopped that the price would collapse to 45 to $50. And it did, because it was that and the basically and the price support that was keeping the price high. Why did Obama do it? He did it for the same reason as Kissinger had done it before. It's, first of all, in that five years, massive investment went into shale oil, okay? US, U.S. oil production went up by 5 million barrels a day in that time, okay? Consumption of products went down 2 million because it was worth people's while to not to you know, run SUVs anymore and stuff like that. And, and it wasn't just there. Everywhere else in the world, those levels of prices in their own currency, you know, basically deterred consumption. It, may, it made oil too expensive to use, really. So by the end of that period, by 2014, oil had become in surplus again. It was no longer, you know, a, you know, it was a surplus of demand over supply. Oil had become, you know, no longer in surplus. And then what, about, then what happened was the price collapsed. And at that point, the Saudis realized they'd been shafted, right? Because they didn't, they didn't understand the policy. Sheikh Yamani, he always did. He was a very wise guy. You know, he, he, he said that the, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones and the Oil Age isn't ending because we're running out of oil. Mm -hmm. he, under, he, he understood that when oil gets too expensive, people start using something else. This is, this is the point. So the price collapsed and Obama's strategy was this. He was a gas president. I call it transition through gas. Where did all his troops go? Qatar. Where's all the gas? Qatar and Iran. Okay. So, and Obama was also looking at gas from the Caspian, the um, Southern Corridor, stuff like that. He believed, I, you know, my, my understanding of his strategy, but you won't find it written down anywhere, um, is that this is what it was. A transition through gas, getting away from reliance on the Saudis. So. Oil price collapses in 2014. Saudis, again, crap themselves at this point because the Americans are no longer giving them, you know, they haven't got the umbrella at this point or they don't think they will. 
and of course what do they do they stop putting money into the petrol into the dollar and they start putting it into the euro what evidence do i have for that it's quite simple dave you know what quantitative easing actually is it's printing dollars isn't it or printing euros yeah. why do you think they printed euros and printed dollars it's so that the dollars can be actually be <laughs> in order in order to, to buy petrodollar assets you need dollars the whole purpose of qe was to enable these you know the producers to actually buy treasury bills and the european central bank started this qe pro program they called it stimulus but no one can actually show me anything more than hand waving about how swapping one financial asset for another will stimulate anything mm. what it did do euro, euro qe in my view was only about the petro euro which the european central bank have been trying to do since forever and nobody was biting on it okay but i believe the saudis did and it was all going swimmingly until president trump came along <laughs> nobody expected president trump if not, he, not clinton, even him probably no, probably not you know hillary clinton in my view had she got in and i'm glad she did actually i preferred i preferred trump to her actually <laughs> no, i'm i'm serious i'm serious no i know um, she's a, she's she's um you know, very competent um sort of corporate capitalist isn't she so so she would have definitely taken us down the wrong path quite fast well all, all, i mean you know look what she said about libya you know we came he saw he died I mean, the woman's a psychopath, in my view. Mm. Whereas Trump, whatever you can say about him, he's a developer, right? You know, Trump understands that global nuclear war is bad for property prices, okay? <laughs> you know? And, 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 and he also understands that people don't do suicide bombing for profits either, you know? So, you know, I, I do see Trump as actually quite constructive. You won't find him. I don't think we have seen him going into any form of war. Mm. And he's always actually prefers to get, you know, he's always talking about getting out of it. So he's playing a dangerous game with the military industrial complex, I can tell you, you know. But uh, so, I mean, so we reached Trump. <clears throat> and this, this is, we, we're getting right to the end of my sort of uh, <laughs> uh, stream of comfort consciousness. One of the most interesting things to me as an observer of US politics when Trump came in was what the hell was Gary Cohn? And don't forget, he, he was one of the two founders of the Intercontinental Exchange. Why did he become... And he's Goldman Sachs, isn't he? Well, he, why did he become, or could he even consent to serve under Trump, who, I, you know, who he despised? Um, in that post of National Economic Advisor. So Gary Cohn comes along. Who's the other one who comes along as Secretary of State? Rex Tillerson, Exxon, you know. I mean, what the hell is he doing serving a Trump government? But wasn't Trump going to drain the swamp? I, I, he didn't, you know, everything he was talking about there was, you know, Steve Bannon's um, anti-corporate take on it i mean one thing tillerson may be is well, the one thing he isn't is anti-corporate you know what i'm mm. saying yeah these two people these two people did not fit 
And yet they came in because they were competent, but they had another agenda, right? They were there and what they did, they put in place a new energy strategy. Obama's strategy was what I call transition through gas. That's how he saw it. Oil was, he, he saw oil in runoff and that what we needed was via gas to get into a, you know, a re renewable energy economy. He bought into all of that, okay? Um, Trump, on the other hand, went retrograde. He went, you know, any, well, you know what motivates Trump more than anything? His hatred of Obama. Anything, no, it's true. It's, it's incredible how these things can be so personal. But because Obama took the piss out of him at some press dinner and humiliated him so completely at that dinner, he never forgave him for that. I remember and, it, yeah, he was taking the piss out of The Apprentice, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he really, really took the piss. And if there's one thing, you know, Trump will never, ever forgive, it's that. And, um, and, and in my view, at that point, every, he swore, I think, every policy that Obama ever had as a legacy, he would destroy. And that's precisely what has motivated Trump more than anything, Dave, in my <laughs> view, in the last four years. It's, it's just personal. It's personal. It's personal. <laughs> So, so the strategy of Obama of this transition through gas essentially got binned. I think, you know, Trump said, look, I need a new strategy, you know. Um, and on the 29th of June, 2017, they announced this new strategy called energy dominance. You may have heard the expression. I've written about it. Um, nobody knew what it was. It was make America great again, but nobody really knew what energy dominance was. And um, then on the 1st of July, at that point, the way that the Saudis set oil prices, this B wave I mentioned to you, it stopped after 17 years. Okay, they stopped using it and they went onto a different benchmark. And then in the next six months, massive amount of, um, of uh, fund of money went into the oil price, yeah, in, into the contract, the futures contracts. The price got sort of bid up again. And we saw after nine months, at the end of March, both Tillerson and Cohn resigned almost with effect on the same day, okay? One announced it beforehand and one slightly after, you know, almost at the time, but they both left after nine months to the day. You know, and, and then this strategy, which they put in place as energy dominance, started to roll out and in in my view what we've seen here <clears throat> is first of all you look at the federal reserve balance sheet and all of the qe or a large chunk of the qe that they've done which is buying treasury bills they started selling them off okay they, they if, if you look at the, the the fed balance sheet from the end of the first quarter or so in 2018 a long process that went on for 18 months, you know, nine months keeps coming up, two times nine months. It, it, it was sold off. And what did that selling off do? That released dollars. And what did that do? That enabled the petro euros to be repatriated, essentially. Yeah. So in my view, it was come back to daddy time for the petro euro to the petro dollar. Okay. And that's, that's my take on what happened. And then, over that, also during that time, um, 
you may recall in end of September, well, in September, 20, last year now we've reached, there was the attack at Abqaiq. You know, the Iranians were supposed to have attacked the Saudi um, oil yeah. installations there. Yeah. Mm, may have done. I, I don't know whether they did or not. They certainly, the finger's been put on them. But what that did do was massively disturb the oil market. There was a huge price jump. And at that point, for six months since and longer, QE started again, but it wasn't quite the same. It gets very technical. Um, the same people, do, it used to be um, sort of ev most banks were involved in, in a sense, they were selling T-bills to the outside world, right? Um, that's what quantitative easing essentially was. Um, but now what they're doing is it's all internal to four big banks. It's, it's, they call it not QE because it's not really, it's been done in, in, internally to the um, system of reserves. You know, the Federal Reserve Banks, it's only the Federal Reserve Banks are involved in this process. And to cut a long story short, I reckon that what we've now seen is that the US are literally basing the dollar on their oil reserves, literally. You know, they are, they, are fund, they are funding shale, not so much with loans, which is what they, they did for many, many years, but with what's called prepay, prepayment. Okay, um, that's what Enron did, by the way. That's how Enron defrauded creditors and investors for 10 years, was using prepay. So, you know, I've written widely about this, and, you know, and you can find links. You know, I had a recent article on it. Um, I'll, put some and, I'll put some links in the description. Yeah, yeah. But that, that is where the US actually reached. And their strategy is for the Federal Reserve Bank to pump up the oil price, okay, financially, um, using the North Sea benchmark, control of the North Sea benchmark to do so. But what happened then was COVID, right? which came out of China, you know, the um, coronavirus. And what that meant was that the, the, this peg, they call it a peg, um, when you, you can peg a currency to another currency, like the, the Hong Kong dollar is pegged to the dollar, you know? And I believe that what they did was they pegged, they pegged the oil price between, or the dollar, between, you know, maybe 50 and $60 a barrel, okay? But the price, demand just disappeared in 30 million barrels a day have disappeared and this this entire strategy of the u.s collapsed and the oil price collapsed with it um now i believe you we talked earlier about the china about china and everybody thinks that the oil price is always going to be controlled by the producers don't they you know it's it's the natural order of things that the producers control the oil market but it isn't the natural order of things because the buy side can take control. It happened with the tin market in 1985 after a 30-year producer cartel collapsed when the money ran out. And that, I believe, is what's happening here. The Chinese and the buy side, I believe now, and I don't think it was deliberate, but they're taking advantage of this demand shock. You see, the Chinese have built oil storage 
on a colossal scale. You know what they're like, Dave. The Chinese have immense capacity to build infrastructure. They have now got more than 1.2 billion barrels of oil stored, right? They have been building oil refineries at a massive rate, so they can refine far more oil products than they can actually use. What are they going to do with the surplus? They can export it. They can dump it. In my view, the China has, over a period of years, taken strategic action because, you know, for every dollar a barrel, they're paying an additional $10 million a day, a day. So, you know, does anybody seriously think the Chinese are going to pay an additional $30 a barrel, which is what the market's expected? Oh, the price is going to go back up again to 50 or 60. No, it isn't. The Chinese aren't going to let it because, you know, they, they, they will control the market to stop it. You know, this is not being seen because people only see it from their own perspective. You know, I, I, I see it in the perspective of, well, this is how markets, other markets work, you know. Chris, that's an enormous amount of information. I'm going to have to listen to this again <laughs> and get my head around it all. Um, where, can, where can people follow all this stuff and where can they follow what you're up to? Well, best thing is on Twitter because you'll find references to me on Twitter. I tweet quite vigorously. So um, my Twitter handle is C-J-E-N-S-C-O-O-K-C-Y-E-N-S-C-O-O-K-C-Y-E-N-S-C-O-O-K-C-Y-E-N-S-C-O-O-K-C-Y-E-N-S-C-O-O-K-C-Y-E
you know, opacity, the darkness. You know, we were introducing transparency and there were people there who did not want mm. that transparency. Mm. So we never got paid. The bourse was basically neutered. The currency was never an issue ever, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I've seen. Um, and, and hearing it from Ardabili, he said, well, it was raised at an OPEC meeting and then forgotten. So it was really. Ahmad Najad came along and made a big noise about it, but he made a big noise about everything. You know that that was just a kleptocracy that regime. Um, you know. And so, what's uh, the latest yeah. with the what's the latest with the boss? Well, we, my colleagues and I, haven't sort of given up because, but we, we a we got away from oil because we think oil the oil market's pretty much finished. Um, oil's in runoff. Um, it's never going to go, you know, above $60 again. And I don't think it will ever approach that. Um, oil products will be around for a bit. We, we see markets sort of going downstream, first of all, to products and then they to services. When I talk about services, I mean, you know, heat, cooling, power, mobility. You and I don't use oil and gas or electricity. We use the services to which they lead. And I believe the markets of the future are gonna be based on the least uh, energy cost provision of services like that. Um, and the reduction of waste, massive reduction of waste. You know, the, um, the James Watt business model. Do you know what James Watt's business model was? James Watt's business model? No, you probably, you wouldn't have heard of this. Wasn't he supposed um, to, wasn't, wasn't his engine supposed to reduce the use of coal? You must have heard something about it. That's exactly what it was. His business partner, they went to the Cornish tin mines who had a water pumping problem um, and used very expensive steam pumps. And they said, look, we're not going to sell you our pump, much more efficient. We'll give you the use of it, which I call pumping as a service, in exchange for a third of the coal you saved. Exactly so. It's a swap of smart ways of doing work, you know, IP, what's between your ears for the value of the fuel saved. And Dave, that is where the money is gonna be in this next century. It's gonna be smart ways of saving resources. But of course, it, and that's I mean, James, what engine didn't save coal though, did it? Oh, it, it, <laughs> it, it made, if it, <laughs> it, it used the damn site more coal, but exactly. then again, you know, CO2 wasn't exactly the issue then that nah. it became, you know. <laughs> it was just so much more efficient. And, uh, and I think the energy efficiency, the fifth fuel, as Exxon call it, I think that is going to be huge. Um, and the Scots and the English really do have a lot of the fifth fuel. It's just that we tend to put it to the wrong purposes. <laughs> anyway, that was quite a long extended stream of consciousness. I hope you get something... Yeah. So I was, I mean, I was, I was going to talk about all sorts of other things, like sort of new economy type stuff, but well, we I think do I, that with I, think, the, I think we probably do, do that, that with round two. If you, do that with round two, if you like. We could do yeah, that another, another time, time. Yeah. I think it's going to yeah, yeah. exhaust people if we carry on now. <laughs> so uh, that, yeah, that was really, really interesting. Would, would you be happy to answer? I mean, I, I have got a lot of questions and I guess other people will. Are you happy to answer questions in the comments? Uh, yes, of course, always. Yeah. If, um, yeah. yeah, so I'm going to listen to it again and try and get my head around a few things. Um, and I'll, and and I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you a few links. As send well. me a few links and I'll, I'll link to your Twitter, um, 
account as well. And uh, that was really, really fascinating. And I'd love to talk to you again about your ideas about, you know, where we go in future and uh, what a new economy mm -hmm. might, might look like. Mm, sure. That was a sort of historical tour you just had, a Cook's tour of the oil markets. It was, it was, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so let's do it again. Let's do it again soon. Great stuff, Dave. Really enjoyed it. Still right. have a brain dump. Yes. Bye for now. Cheers, Chris. <laughs> Bye.